and welcome to the Latest Funds Fan Podcast. I'm Kyle Caldwell, your host. I am the Collectives Editor at Interactive Investor. As usual, I have with me for the first part of the podcast, Tom Bailey, who is the ETFs Editor at Interactive Investor. In each episode, we begin by chatting through a couple of news items related to funds and investment trusts. Then, coming up in the middle section, is a fund manager interview. And for this episode, I'm joined by a value investor. Among the items we discussed are how to avoid value traps and whether the value rally that kicked off last November has run its course, given that growth stocks have had the upper hand over value stocks in the past couple of months. Then we finish off with one of Interactive Investors analysts picking a fund that stands out from the competition in its respective sector. For this episode, we're just going to shake things up a little bit. And me and Tom are going to focus on just one news story and give our views on the wider debate around it. And that debate is the subject of active funds versus passive funds. Twice a year, an active versus passive scorecard is published by S&P, the latest of which for the first six months of this year was published earlier this month. Tom, before we get into the debate, could you... Explain what the scorecard measures and what the latest report tells us. Yeah, sure. So um, the the latest mid-year results for for the scorecard showed that um, just over half of UK active equity funds outperformed the S&P UK index in the first six months of the year. So as you said, they do this uh, twice every year and uh, compare compare how many funds outperform uh, the S&P's own own indexes. So in this case, it's the S&P United Kingdom BMI index. Um, And so... Roughly half of UK active funds outperformed uh, over a one-year period. This was kind of even better with 23% underperforming, so about 75% outperforming. However, as you'd expect, over a longer period of time, uh, more fund managers underperform. So on a 10-year basis, the latest, result, latest results show that 62% of UK active fund managers failed to outperform the benchmark. Uh, fund managers fishing other other markets obviously performed worse. Uh, and the UK is known, known for having... Um, uh, performing better on these scorecards. Um, so, for example, over a 10-year period, 85% of European equity fund managers underperformed the S&P Europe 350 index. Uh, when it comes to US fund managers, or US-focused fund managers, rather, uh, 95% uh, underperformed when compared to the S&P 500. Uh, and for global-focused f- fund managers, 98% under- underperformed the S&P Global 1200. My view on the active versus passive debate is that it's not an either-or decision. I think it's sensible to hold a mixture of active and passive funds in a portfolio. But before we get into the debate, a quick definition of the two approaches. So an active fund has a fund manager and a team of researchers who select the shares that they believe will potentially perform better than the stock market. Passive funds, which go by the names of either index funds, tracker funds, or exchange trader funds, ETFs aim to replicate the performance of a stock market index. And as the S&P data shows, when it comes to active funds, the reality is that most fail to consistently deliver market-beating performance. There's also an overwhelming amount of choice, which can be completely off-putting for beginner investors. Those opting for a passive fund have much less homework to do. I mean, The key things to do are to decide on the stock market index that you want to track and then find the cheapest index fund or ETF that you can. And it's also um, a good idea to check the fund's tracking error. 
This shows how efficient the passive fund is at replicating the performance of the index that it follows. The lower the tracking error, the better. In short, passive funds offer investors equity exposure simply, cheaply, and effectively. Yeah, so I think one of the best ways to think about the whole active versus passive debate is to perhaps start with uh, William Sharp's 1991 paper, The Arithmetic of Active Management. It's quite a short paper, but it's proved uh, very influential. So he basically tries to prove that active investing is kind of a zero-sum game. So it kind of the starting point is to, to, to understand that the market is made up of active investors. So therefore, the average performance of an active investor must be equal to the market's average return. And it's just kind of just the math behind it. And then when you add in fees, the average fund's performance is the average market return minus those fees. So it becomes a kind of a negative sum game. So I mean, in the paper, uh, Sharp himself writes that properly measured, the average actively managed dollar must underperform the average passively managed dollar net of costs. Of course, this paper has come under lots of criticism, active managers and the like, uh, and other academics too. And I point out that active funds in, in the sense that we're talking about and, and the arguments often use are not really the whole market. They don't account for the whole market. There's many more different actors in the market than just your your, your fund manager will be reading about on Interactive Investor. Um, but I still think it's kind of a useful framework for understanding the theoretical case for passive overactive. And indeed, it's also important for remembering the, the, this idea that the market is made up of rational, informed, professional investors that are constantly trying to, to price a stock and to incorporate new information into those prices. And, and it's a constant machine of all these professionals trying to work this out who are kind of all the different theories and knowledge, understanding. And, and so when, once you kind of, and this is obviously the, the way, of, way of describing the efficient market hypothesis, and kind of once you accept this idea of how the market really is, then you have to, you kind of start to realize, well, obviously it's hard to beat the market. And then and then the question is, well, why should the average active manager that you, you've chosen to, to, to use uh, in, in your portfolio be able to outwit and outthink the, the collective knowledge of, of this market? Indeed, that's the uh, that's a trade-off with active funds. There's the possibility of outperforming, but there are no guarantees. Um, and as you mentioned, Tom, there's the risk of paying more through investing in active funds, which are more expensive than um, passive funds and not getting value for money if the fund does underperform an index. Um, and obviously, when the fund underperforms, it's not as if um, the fund charge is reduced um, or you know you get your money back. Um, you, you, pay, you pay your fee in the hope that that fund manager will outperform the index. Whereas with passive funds, investors will, by definition, they'll not outperform, but they'll also not heavily underperform a stock market as their fortunes are tied to it. But in defense of active management, there are some really good fund managers and teams out there. Um, so it's a case of DIY investors um, doing their homework um, to find those funds that do stand out from the crowd and can potentially beat average and beat the market over the long term. Um, and as part of your research, it's key to understand how the fund invests. Then it's a case of ultimately taking a view on whether you think the fund could be a good choice over the long term on delivering on a team of outperforming an index. Tom, as you are a specialist um, in ETFs, you are not sitting as much on the fence as I am regarding active versus passive funds, but you do hold some active funds in your personal portfolio. I think it'd be interesting for the listeners for you to um, explain your thought process behind that. Yeah, so while, while most of my portfolio is just the World Index, um, I, I do have some active trust, and I should emphasize trust here, not opening the funds, but that's a whole different debate. But um, uh, so, you know, while, while the theory behind passive investing is, is broadly sound, uh, it's pretty hard to fault, I think. 
Um, there are kind of there's several problems are put into practice as an individual investor. Um, I mean, obviously, first of all, is is your, your, you choose your allocation to different parts of the market. You can buy the MSCI World Index um, or All Country World Index and just be done with it. But a lot of people are going to be trying to decide if they want allocation to the UK in, in X amount more than than is say represented in the in, in the Acqui Index. Um, but but beyond that, in terms of active funds, um, I mean, the, the one obviously problem is index funds and ETFs can't own all parts of the market, right? The obvious example here is unlisted companies. Um, and so, you know, there's there's a number of trusts out there that, that do invest in unlisted companies. And as any kind of regular listeners of, of, of the show or readers of II will know that there's this kind of trend towards an increasing number of companies uh, delaying going public. So their best years of growth are, are when, when they're still privately hold, held. So investment trusts offer a way to kind of get around this, this kind of growing issue in, in capital markets for investors in terms of you, you're able to access unlisted assets. And on top of that, there's also, you know, there's there's very small parts of the market or niche parts of the market which which just won't ever be properly represented by an, by an ETF or an index fund. Um, particularly in, in, you know, the small stocks in the UK, there's, there's very famous investment funds and trusts that invest in, in, in AIM shares, which you, you don't really get access to for any, any sort of index tracker. Uh, and then, of course, you, when it comes to investing in small companies, you can also kind of see the value actually is added uh, by by an active manager if they're if they're kind of actually engaged in the companies. If they're if, it, if they invest in small companies, they represent a, a relatively high amount of the ownership of that share. They can engage with the company and try and unlock some shareholder value that way. Obviously, an index fund can't do that. So there's all these other kind of considerations you might want to do for why you you, you might want to have some active funds in your portfolio alongside passive. But of course, some of the more strict proponents of passive will say this is all just a waste of time. Just buy the index and be done with it. Um, you know, okay, fine. They might take the issue about unlisted companies or shareholder engagement, but ultimately, just just stick with buying the world index. You'll probably do probably do fine doing that. And, and I see their point, but this brings me to my second point, which is kind of human psychology being what it is. Uh, many of us kind of want a sense of sense of input into and control over our portfolios, even if it's just a small amount. So having a mostly indexed portfolio alongside a few active funds or trusts uh, with, with some sort of niche, perhaps, allows us kind of kind of get this feeling. Uh, it, it, it lets us feel like you know we're a bit clever when 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 a, when active fund we pick outperforms or performs very well, uh, and of course it works both ways. And you can choose a horrible fund. You could have done that with some of the, the famous blow up, blow ups of funds of the last few years, and that, and that could have made a real dent in your portfolio. And that's the risks uh, associated with, with that approach. But <clears throat> so if you can buy the MSCI All World Index in, in an ETF or index fund wrapper and be happy with it, that's great. And, and that, that that probably is the best option on average in my view. But as I said, it's unrealistic to expect everyone, including myself, to be kind of psychologically content with that. I do think there's a lot to be said about the uh, the points you've made there on the human psychology aspect to it all. Um, yeah, do yeah, I think that's a really important point. I mean, I think a lot of investors do like the challenge of um, trying to beat the market. Like Tom, um, I also practice what I preach. Um, my pension is mainly invested in a global index fund, while my um, stocks and shares ISA has a handful of active funds, um, like Tom, mainly uh, investment trusts. The reasons why um, both myself and Tom both prefer investment trusts over funds is a uh, whole other debate that would uh, take up a lot of time. So um, let's not go into that now, but we could perhaps cover that off in a future podcast. As mentioned a moment ago, there are some very skilled fund managers out there. And a success story for me, having owned it for um, eight years or so, is Scottish Mortgage, which over that time period has comfortably outperformed a global index. Interactive Investors Analyst Team is also agnostic on the active versus passive debate, 
with the Super 60 list of rate of funds, including both active and passive options. The Super 60 list is designed to provide a menu of high quality choices that's suitable for all investors, regardless of experience. These are not personal recommendations. They are a short list of rated investments picked from the thousands of funds that are available to investors. And the final point to make about the active versus passive debate, particularly at this time, given there seems to be a lot of nervousness around the future direction of stock markets, is that as passive funds do fall in line with the market, they will not protect investors. Whereas in theory, active funds can take measures to protect capital when markets fall, such as moving into cash or buying more defensive shares. For our fund manager interview, I'm joined by Sam Ziff, who is the co-manager of the Overstone Global Equity Income Fund. The fund invests in value shares. Sam, could you briefly sum up how you invest and how you avoid potential value traps? Every, everything we do is bottom up. Uh, we're bottom up stock pickers fundamentally. Uh, we're looking for attractively valued companies uh, that are long-term winners. We run a concentrated portfolio of uh, 20 to 30 stocks. We want to invest in our best ideas, not our next best ideas. Um, as for your question about value traps, a very good question. Um, we describe value traps as being the occupational hazard of the value investor. Uh, we will encounter them. Um, there's, there's very little we can do to avoid that. Uh, but there are things we can do to uh, mitigate the risks. And, and, I, and I think they, they sort of fall into three camps. Of the, of, the, of the sorts of things we look at in order to try and mitigate that risk. And, and they are uh, looking at balance sheet risks, uh, operational risks. And it's, and it's when those two combine that we're very nervous. Uh, and, and finally, obsolescence risk is, is, is probably the third area that we look to um, avoid. The fund has just under a third of its assets in the UK. Is this an area you've been adding to in recent months on valuation grounds? And could you give us a flavour um, of where you're investing by naming a couple of stock examples that you think look attractive at present? Yeah, so so our exposure to the UK uh, really increased around the time of the uh, the referendum, uh, the, the Brexit referendum, and we began to find more and more opportunities in the UK that look, looked attractive. And, and there's a number of very well-run uh, businesses in the UK uh, that uh, are, are focused on the, on the domestic economy that have been ignored by managers around the world. Just to give one example, JD Weatherspoons, which was which was actually an addition around the time of the pandemic. Um, it's the lowest cost operator in the UK pub sector. It has um, a business model that's akin to Costco or Amazon, where they're effectively constantly lowering costs, reinvesting that back into price to drive volumes um, and creating a flywheel around the business in that fashion. And it's got to the point now where the revenue per pub is around four times that of the average pub in the UK. So it's got huge scale advantages over its competitors. Um, that's trading out. Uh, obviously, the last 12 months have been uh, tricky for Weatherspoons, but um, to say the least, but that is trading at around 10 times normalised cash flow today. And the UK market, it, it's still 
remains fairly unloved. We've had um, a number of companies overseas making bids for UK companies, but investors um, don't seem to be viewing the stock, the UK stock market in the same light as a bargain. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I, I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, I think obviously things go in and out of favour and, and they can stay in favour for longer than they should and out of favour longer than they should. Um, it's, and that applies not just to the UK, but more broadly to different assets and types of assets around the world at various points in time. Um, and, and I guess the UK is going through one of those moments where it's out of favour. Uh, clearly, those, those, those macro factors like Brexit don't help. But we think that that's now in the rearview mirror and looking forward, um, you know, the UK remains a very competitive place uh, to do business. And in regard to um, the Overstone Global Equity Income's fund's performance, the fund's top quartile over one year in the Investment Association's global equity income sector. But over three and six months, the fund has underperformed the average fund in that sector. Why is it that the value rally, um, which obviously started last November with the uh, the vaccine announcements, um, why has it in recent months either paused for breath or potentially run out of steam? Yeah, I think, I mean, we, we just talked about the UK in the context of things going in and out of favour value and other styles have done the same thing. They go in and out of favour at various points in time. Uh, but look, looking back over the last 100 years, value today as a style of investing is probably more out of favour than it has been at any point bar the, the dot-com boom and bubble um, based on sort of traditional value metrics. In terms of sort of the more recent period over the last three and six months, clearly the, the sort of toing and froing of markets is driven by short-term factors like such as inflation and interest rate expectations. Um, but, but you but you asked about the steam um, and how much steam there's left in the trade. I mean, when we look at our portfolios, they look very attractively valued, especially on a relative basis. So um, the the income portfolio is trading on a low double-digit uh, multiple of, of earnings and cash flows, uh, which is around a 50% discount to the wider market. And today, we, we, we track the upside of all, of all the holdings in the portfolio. Today, there's around 50% upside, uh, which compares to sort of a long-term median of close to 30% upside for the stocks we hold. So we, we think there's a lot of upside in the portfolio today, and it's very attractive. You mentioned um, J.D. Weatherspoon um, earlier. Are there any other companies that you would particularly highlight at the moment that on valuation grounds do look um, sort of too cheap to ignore or very attractive? Our most recent purchase has been Alibaba, the Chinese tech company. So often it's said that uh, value managers can't invest in tech companies. Well, here's a tech company that's very much come into our radar. Uh, clearly, it's got its own set of issues. And again, it's a great example of how sentiment waxes and wanes. Uh, 18 months ago, the only place you could invest was China and technology. And today, the only place you can't invest is China and technology. And, and I think Alibaba, you know, when we look at it, uh, and we, we have to approach it on a sum of the parts type basis, it just looks incredibly undervalued but for the, for the constituent parts that it, that, that it, that it operates. I wanted to now move on to your outlook for dividends. Have the majority of companies that are held in the portfolio returned to the dividend register? 
And what's your outlook for global dividends going forward? How soon do you think they will return to pre-pandemic levels? Um, so yeah, the majority of companies that paused dividend payments last year have started repaying them. Uh, there's a couple of companies that we, st- we still hold a couple. We, we own a couple of airlines, such as Legion, which is a US low-cost airline that has yet to restore dividend, restart dividend payments. Um, and we expect that they will do so in the next year or so. But if we look across the, the portfolio as a whole, we think that dividends in this year, 2021, will be pretty close to 2019. And that, and that includes a combination of companies such as Allegiant that haven't returned and others that have continued to grow through the pandemic. Their dividends. And finally, a question that we ask all the guests on the podcast. Do you personally invest in the Overstone Global Equity Income Fund? Uh, yes, of course, I'm invested. Sam, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Tom. And finally, it is our Fund Spotlight feature. For this episode, I'm joined by Tracy Zhao, a senior fund analyst at Interactive Investor. So Tracy, what have you chosen and what does the fund do? Um, I have chosen Mangeoji Continental European Growth Fund. Um, the fund is actively managed, aiming to outperform FTSE World Europe ex-UK index over a five-year rolling period. Um, since inception in 1998, the size of the portfolio has grown over to 1.4 billion. Uh, this is the seventh year that the fund has been under the management of seasoned investor Rory Powell. Um, in 2018, Virginia Norback has... Um, was promoted to be the co-manager. The management take a long-term ownership approach, uh, adopt stock picking, as opposed to um, focusing on wide macroeconomic backdrop. Um, Currently, there are 30 positions in the fund. Over the past three years and five years, the fund has achieved first first quartile performance compared to its peers. And how does the fund manager invest? Could you run through the uh, investment process? The management aims to identify and invest in Europe's strongest company. Um, they must display a certain characteristic um, that can sustainable over long term. Um, they can be any size um, from any country or industry in the continent. Companies selected fall into the category of established leaders and emerging wingers. Established leaders are the leader in their industry in terms of market share and pricing power. Um, they have they must have a clear five-year expansion path in terms of in terms of earning and uh, free cash flow. The leader I expect to um, have an upside potential of 10% a year on average under normal market condition. Emerging winners are the companies that have high growth in new or existing market and they can demonstrate clear competitive advantage. The winner I expected to have an upside potential of 15% a year on average under normal market condition. Over 2,000 companies, 30 holdings have been selected. Two thirds are established leader and one third are emerging winner. This strategy clearly favors quality growth stock. So what areas is the fund currently favouring? And could you give us a flavour of what it invests in by naming some stock examples? 
um, the portfolio overweights consumer discretionary uh, information technology and uh, consumer staples. These three sectors count about 60% of the fund. The fund underweights financials and communication service firms. Um, currently, over 90% of the holding are large companies. Um, by say large company, they are the companies have a market cap over 1 billion. Um, in terms of country, just under 50% of the portfolio is invested in France, Germany, and Switzerland. Moving on to top 10 holdings, which counts just over half of the portfolio, um, such as LVMH, L'Oreal, Ferrari, Nestle, Puma, which are household familiar names. And how does the fund stand out from the crowd? Um, the fund sits in the Super 60 European equity category. Um, it has proven track records. Over three years and five years, the fund outperformed its peer. In addition, it has achieved this with below average risk. Um, European region is a rich hunting ground for stock pickers in search for companies which have a long track record of successfully navigating through various economic conditions. Um, in regarding to performance, European equity market has lagged the US and the UK since the start of the year and in the third quarter. There is a scope for investor sentiment to improve going forward, given European economy is yet to reach its pre-pandemic level. Um, a final point is that the fund is highly concentrated. We would expect short-term volatility from time to time. Investors therefore need to adopt a long-term approach and a diversity with funds in other regions and the style as a part of their overall portfolio. That's all for this episode. Hope you've enjoyed listening. And if that is the case, then please do give us a like, tell your friends and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. There's much more investment insight and ideas at ii.co.uk. We'll be back in early November. November.